Hi, my name is Coy Adkins, and thank you for listening to this episode of Crime Nerds. Before I start this episode, I have to give a small disclaimer. Today, we're going to talk about three cases in New York, Texas, and California that may all be connected, or at least have the same person connected to all the cases. One of these cases is beginning a trial this month, and we're going to cover a lot of things in this episode, so just keep in mind, the defendant in this case is presumed innocent until proven guilty in court, and as you're going to learn, that might be a little difficult to do, so stay tuned. Robert Durst was born April 12, 1943. His father, Seymour Durst, was an inventor and real estate mogul in New York City. Seymour was the CEO of the Durst Organization and also the inventor of the National Debt Clock. And just to give you an idea of how big the Durst Organization is, that's the company that co-developed and currently manages One World Trade Center. So we're talking about a big company here that makes a ton of money. When Robert was only seven years old, his mother died from a fall at their home. Now, this fall was reported to have been an accident, saying that she fell from the roof. Robert would later claim that he saw her jump from the roof and that it was a suicide. Robert's brother Douglas has come out saying that Robert's lying about watching his mother die and that it wasn't a suicide. After high school, Robert attended Lehigh University and graduated with a bachelor's degree in economics in 1965. He then moved to LA where he enrolled in a doctoral program at UCLA. While he was at UCLA, he became friends with a woman named Susan Berman, and we're going to get to her again in a few minutes. But in 1969, Robert left UCLA and moved back to New York. In the fall of 1971, Robert was 28 years old and living in Vermont. He met Kathleen McCormick, who went by Kathy, on one of his trips into New York City. At the time, Kathy was working as a dental hygienist with plans to become a pediatrician. Kathy was working and living in New York City at the time. After only two dates, Robert asked Kathy to move in with him in his Vermont house. Robert had just opened up a health food store there that he was managing. And while his father didn't approve of him having this health food store, Kathy liked the idea and supported him and that just gave him a little bit of comfort. By January of 1972, Kathy had moved in with Robert. Seymour kept asking Robert to move back to New York and work at the Durst organization. After all, it was a family business. Eventually, Robert and Kathy moved to Manhattan and they got married on Robert's 30th birthday in 1973. Robert and Kathy's marriage was not that great. Friends of Kathy's have said that Robert was emotionally and physically abusive towards her. By 1980, there were talks of divorce, and Robert even hired a lawyer to prepare divorce papers. Kathy kept a diary, and parts of it were released in the HBO documentary The Jinx. In the diary, Kathy talks about multiple incidents where she and Robert were in an argument and he would slap or push her. In one argument, she said that Robert punched her in the face, knocking her to the ground. 
This incident was so bad that she had to go to the hospital to get treatment. At the time, Kathy was attending Albert Einstein College of Medicine and was only a few months from earning her degree to become a pediatrician when she went missing. According to Robert, on January 31, 1982, he and Kathy were in an argument. Robert described this argument as a pushing and shoving kind of argument, and this was about three weeks after the altercation that put her in the hospital. Robert said that Kathy wanted to drive the car to the city and he didn't want her to, so he drove her to the train station to take a train to another one of their houses in New York. Robert said that after he put Kathy on a train, he went home, saw his neighbor out, and had a glass of wine with him. He then went for a walk and called Kathy from a payphone, where he talked to her briefly. A few days passed, and Robert didn't hear from Kathy. And at first, he didn't think much of it, because she was in medical school, and the hours and everything from school could be really tough on her. And it wasn't until he received a call from the college that he became worried. They said that Kathy had called in sick on February 1st, but even after that, she hadn't shown up for multiple classes for a few days, and they hadn't heard from her since. Robert said that he went to his father, Seymour, and his brother, Douglas, to see what they thought he should do. Seymour told Robert that Kathy was probably tired of all the issues they were having and had just left him. Robert waited a few more days and then contacted the 20th Precinct to the NYPD to report Kathy missing. In the first couple days of the investigation, the police went to Robert's neighbor, who denied that Robert ever came over and that they had a glass of wine on January 31st. Police also talked to the doorman at the apartment building that Kathy was going to on Riverside Drive. He claimed that he did see Kathy on February 1st go into the building. However, later on, a private investigator that was hired by Robert's own lawyer talked to the doorman. At that time, he said that he did not see Kathy on February 1st and that he may not even been working that day. Robert initially offered a $100,000 reward for anyone with information on Kathy. He then reduced this reward to $15,000. But, like so many other cases, tips came in that led nowhere. Weeks, months, and years went by. There was no signs of Kathy. Friends or family hadn't heard a word from her. In 1990, Robert filed for divorce against Kathy, claiming spousal abandonment, which I'm not really sure how that happens if there's not a single clue that Kathy was still alive, but the divorce was granted. In 1999, the police reopened the case and searched Robert's South Salem home for any evidence in the case, but came up empty. In 2017, Kathy was legally declared dead. Before she was declared dead, her mother, Ann McCormick, attempted to sue Robert for $100 million, saying that he was responsible for Kathy's death and that he deprived the family's right to bury Kathy by hiding her body. A judge ended up dismissing this lawsuit, saying that they waited too long to file the lawsuit. One of the biggest things hurting this investigation is that police don't have any evidence for anything. All they have is inconsistent stories from multiple people, including the doorman. They don't have a crime scene to go over, look for evidence. Robert's statements about having wine with the neighbor were inconsistent with what the neighbor said. Robert also said that he talked to Kathy on the phone when he called her from the payphone that night. 
But later he said that he did call her, she just didn't answer. So more stories are changing. Now, for Robert, this all looks bad on him. People believe that he did kill Kathy and hit her body, especially Kathy's family. There's just no evidence to charge him. And things aren't going to get better for him. Because next, he's accused of killing one of his best friends. Remember when I told you about Robert briefly living in L.A. when he attended school at UCLA? That's where he became friends with Susan Berman. Even after Robert left L.A., he and Susan remained close friends for a long time. In 2000, Susan was still living in L.A., working as a journalist and a screenwriter. Susan was last seen a couple days before Christmas when she went to the movies with some of her friends. On December 24, 2000, her neighbors called the Beverly Hills Police Department when they found her back door open and her three fox terriers running around outside. When police entered the house, they found Susan murdered with a gunshot wound to the back of her head. Immediately, there were two working theories about Susan's death. You see, Susan didn't come from a normal family. Her father was David Berman, who was a mobster and was a big figure in organized crime around Las Vegas. While David died in the 1950s and Susan didn't have anything to do with the mob, she did write a few articles about them and it was reported that she was working on another one at the time of her death. Also, her death was described as execution style, which leaned more toward mob tactics. Then, during this investigation, the name Robert Durst popped up. Investigators from L.A. learned that Robert had recently given Susan $50,000. Robert had given her the money because she had fallen on tough times and needed some help. And it was revealed in a 2005 deposition that shortly before her death, Susan contacted Robert saying that detectives and a district attorney from New York wanted to schedule an interview with her and talk to her about Kathy's disappearance. According to a few of her friends, Susan was expecting Robert to come to L.A. around Christmas. They even said that she was really excited to see Robert again. Now, police were able to place Robert in California. On December 19th, he flew into Trinidad, California, which is just north of San Francisco. Police were able to trace his phone calls about 90 miles south of Trinidad because he stopped at multiple payphones to call and check his voicemail which apparently he had an obsession with checking his voicemail multiple times a day. And there's going to be more on that later too. So they have him in Northern California and traveling south towards L.A. But the few days before Susan's murder, Robert was off the grid. He never called to check his voicemail, and the phone company said that his phone was turned off during these few days. Robert appeared again on December 23rd when he bought an airline ticket from San Francisco to New York. The coroner's office in L.A. said that Susan would have been killed on December 23rd. Then, a few days after Susan's body was found, Beverly Hills Police Department received a handwritten note in the mail that was postmarked on December 23rd. The note had Susan's address written on it and the word cadaver. On the envelope that the note was in, Beverly in Beverly Hills was spelled wrong. The author of the letter put an extra E in between the L and Y on Beverly. In his interview on the Jinx documentary, 
The filmmakers bring up this letter to Robert, and he responded saying that Susan's killer would have been the one to write the letter. The letter was also written in all capital block letters, and in this documentary, Robert also said that his theory was that the author of the letter was trying to disguise their handwriting. The police believe that Robert had confided in Susan and told her what really happened with Kathy. Then, when he found out that the district attorney from New York wanted to talk to her, he panicked and killed her. And we aren't done with Susan's case just yet, but it would be several years before anything else happened with the case. So, we're going to come back to this. The next murder case that Robert was involved in is going to have you second-guessing everything, because sometimes... It just might be a little harder to find someone guilty of a crime than you think. Around October in 2001, a teenage boy was fishing in the bay of Galveston, Texas, when he saw something in the water. As he got a closer look, he saw what looked like a body, or part of a body. And it turned out to be a human torso. Over the last few years, I've been writing a fictional book called One Moment, and it's now available on Amazon. It's based in St. Augustine, Florida, and it tells the story of Micah and Sarah. After spending six years in the Army, Micah returned to his hometown. Returning home was never part of his plan, but after the physical, emotional, and mental stress from war, home was the best place for him. Sarah is beginning to put her life back together after escaping an abusive marriage. At 24 years old, She's a 911 dispatcher living in St. Augustine. While she is starting to heal, she crosses paths with Micah. Immediately, there is an undeniable connection between the two of them, and they know that they were put in each other's lives for a reason. When Sarah's jealous and abusive ex-husband finds out about the new relationship, he has to get involved himself. While this puts a strain on Sarah and Micah's relationship, dark secrets begin to come out, and they learn that Maybe you never truly know someone, and sometimes the best and the worst things in life can all be traced back to one moment. One Moment's available now on Amazon. It's $9.99 for a paperback copy and $2.99 for an ebook. The Amazon link is in the show notes, and if you read it, I really hope you enjoy it, and please let me know what you think of it. When police arrived, they were able to remove the torso from the water. They began searching around the area for any more body parts. And they began finding black garbage bags floating around. And each bag had a different body part in it. They found both legs and both arms to the victim, but couldn't find the victim's head. And divers would end up spending several days searching the area, but came up empty. But they did find part of a newspaper that had the address that the paper was delivered to of 2213 Avenue K in Galveston. Police went to the address and found a small trail of blood leading from the front door down the stairs to the street. Now, this house was broken into apartments, and the bottom floor, one was rented to an older man named Morris Black, and the other was an older, mute lady named Dorothy Siner. 
the police were able to get a fingerprint from the hand that they found, which did match to Morris Black. While police were there, they were able to trace the trail of blood through the hallway to apartment number two. They then got a search warrant for the apartment, and while they were searching the apartment, they noticed that there were cuts in the kitchen floor. Investigators had the floor pulled up, and underneath the cuts in the floor were blood stains. This blood also matched back to Morris Black. So police were able to identify that apartment 2 was at least the apartment that Morris was dismembered in. And apartment 2 was the one that was rented to the little old mute lady, Dorothy Siner. But there's a little more to her than what meets the eye. The landlord said that Dorothy was gone a lot and traveled all over the place. And this seemed really odd to the investigators because this was a really cheap apartment for the area. And if she spent all this time and money traveling, then she probably could have afforded a much nicer place. Police started going through her trash and they found a receipt for a bow saw at a nearby hardware store. And then they found a receipt with the name Robert Durst on it. The receipt was to a nearby eyeglass store, and when police went, the clerk told them that Robert was actually supposed to come and pick a pair of glasses up soon. On October 9th, 2001, Robert showed up to pick up his glasses, the clerk contacted the detectives, and as he was leaving the store, he was pulled over by police. In the back of his car was a bow saw. Robert was then placed under arrest for the murder of Morris Black, but he did not stay in jail long at all. Robert was released on a $300,000 bond the next day. He was given a court hearing to appear on October 16th. I don't know how you get released the next day on a murder charge, but that's what happened here. When October 16th came around, the courtroom was ready. By that time, Everyone had heard that Robert Durst was arrested for murder after he's already been linked to a disappearance of his wife and the murder of his friend. So reporters were here and they were ready for this story. But 10 o'clock came and Robert did not show up. And immediately a warrant was issued for his arrest. His lawyers were on TV pleading for him to just turn himself in. But there was no response from Robert. On November 30th, Robert was caught inside of a supermarket in Pennsylvania trying to shoplift band-aids and a sandwich, even though he had $500 in his pocket. Then, when police searched his car outside the supermarket, they found two guns, $37,000 in cash, and Moore's Black's driver's license. Robert was extradited back to Texas, where he was then held until his trial in 2003. Now, one thing you rarely see in big trials is the defendant taking the stand. But in this case, the first witness that the defense called was Robert Durst. Robert said that he was under the skies as an old woman because he was trying to get away from stuff going on in New York, like reporters and other people wanting to talk to him about stuff, and he was just trying to get away. And he said that he had to be a mute woman because he said he couldn't fake a female voice because his was so gravelly. Robert claimed that he did become friends with Morris and he ended up telling Morris who he really was. Robert said that one day he came home and Morris was in his apartment 
with an eviction letter where the landlord was trying to evict Morris. Morris had Robert's gun in his hand and shot at the eviction letter that he pinned on the wall. He then threatened Robert with the gun. Robert and Morris then began fighting over the gun and at some point in the fight the gun went off shooting Morris in the face. Robert claimed that he had no idea what to do but that he freaked out and knew he had to get rid of the body. He said that he tried to move the body but it was too heavy for him. So that's when he got the saw and cut the body up, put it into trash bags, and then tossed the bags in the bay. Robert said that he expected the bags would sink, but they just floated. Robert claimed that he had no idea what happened to Morse's head in that he threw it in the water with the other bags. The prosecution argued that Morris probably went to Robert asking him for money whenever he had the eviction letter, because they did find that eviction letter in the apartment. And whenever Robert said that he wouldn't do it, Morris began saying that he would tell people who he really was. And they then said that Robert became angry about this and shot Morris in the back of the head. They predicted that when Robert threw the bags in the bay and saw them floating, he knew that Morris's head would be the only place where there would be evidence to show how he died and that he was shot in the back of the head, not in the face during a fight over a gun so that he then retrieved the bag and disposed of it another way. When the jury deliberated, they couldn't take into consideration that Robert dismembered the body and disposed of it in the bay. They could only consider the events leading up to Morris dying. Morris's head was never located, so they couldn't do any forensics to see how he was killed. And the only other evidence they had to go on was Robert's story. On November 11th, 2003, the jury found Robert not guilty of Morris Black's murder. And yes, you heard me right, not guilty. On December 21st, 2004, Robert did plead guilty for skipping his bail and evidence tampering. He was given five years in prison, but with credit towards time that he served leading up to the trial, he ended up being released from prison in July of 2005. Like I said in the beginning, it may be harder to prove someone is guilty of a crime than we expect. Personally, I feel like it's really hard to look innocent whenever you dismember a body, bag it up, and then throw it in the water. But when you can't take that into consideration and you can only go off the word of one person and there was a fight over a gun and there's no evidence to go with either side, it's really hard to find him guilty. But in this case, the jury could only work with what they had. And that was the result of this trial. Now, back to Susan's case. In 2015, the filmmakers of the Jinx documentary came across a relative of Susan's. The relative was going through a bunch of Susan's belongings that were given to them in storage. And they came across a letter that was sent to Susan in 1999. The envelope to the letter had Susan's address on it, and the Beverly in Beverly Hills was spelled wrong. It was spelled with an extra E between the L and the Y. It was also written in capital block letters, just like the anonymous letter sent to the police that gave her address and said the word cadaver. The handwriting in both letters also look so similar to each other. 
the letter from 1999 was written to her by Robert Durst on the Durst Organization letterhead. I'm going to have a photo of these two envelopes side by side on our Instagram page, so you can go and check it out for yourself at Crime Nerds Podcast on Instagram. Now, I don't know if this letter was the reason why a warrant was issued, or if there was more evidence that just hasn't been released yet. But regardless, on March 14th, 2015, Robert was arrested by the FBI in New Orleans for Susan's murder. He was staying at a hotel under a fake name, and he was caught because he called to check his voicemail. In his possession, he had a passport, maps of Louisiana, Florida, and Cuba. He also had fake IDs, a new cell phone, and over $42,000 in a case. He also had an additional $117,000 that was being sent to him from a friend. Now, Robert's trial for Susan's murder began March 2, 2020, and it's still going on. Robert's name has also been brought up in the cases of three other missing girls. The 1971 disappearance of Lynn Schultz from Vermont. Lynn visited the health food store that Robert started, and the day she disappeared, the last place she was seen was at the bus stop across from the store. But other than that, there is nothing else to link Robert to her case. Then, there was the disappearance of 16-year-old Karen Mitchell from Eureka, California, and 18-year-old Kristen Madoffrey from San Francisco in 1997. Robert was said to have visited the clothing store that Karen's aunt owned, and the witness that saw her get abducted, they described a suspect similar to Robert's appearance. And I covered Kristen's case in a previous episode that you can also listen to. But in each of those cases, Robert has ended up being ruled out as a suspect. And I will say it again, there's a lot of stuff that does not look good for Robert. Now, I will keep you up to date on Susan's trial, and I'll release an update whenever that trial is finished with the outcome. If you're able to watch it, the HBO documentary, The Jinx, is a great documentary that covers a lot of good stuff and dives deeper into this case. And I'm not going to spoil the ending to the documentary, but it's probably one of the best endings to a true crime documentary you can watch, so check it out. And one note as we're wrapping this episode up, if you or anyone you know is going through any domestic violence, please contact your local law enforcement. I understand it's a tough thing to ask, but no one ever deserves to live like that. Not knowing if you're going to come home and end up having to go to the hospital or not. So please, just reach out to someone. In the show notes, I'm going to have the website link and the phone number to the domestic abuse hotline. From the website, you can also chat with them online without ever having to make a phone call. As always, thank you for listening to this episode of Crime Nerds. 